the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Hi, Brian. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good, except I think I was telling you when we first got here, uh, every now and then things happen where I feel my age. I was throwing a baseball with my son yesterday, and I woke up this morning unable to lift my right arm. Uh-huh. So That's what everyone tells me your I, 40s I finally is. think my dreams of the of making a major leagues are done. I don't think my shoulder can handle it. Okay, is that a real, like, maybe that's a male brain thing predominantly, but I've lived in that space. Like, maybe I'm just really good at a sport I just never tried. I just never do. I'm going to try them all. Maybe I'm a prodigy. I just didn't know it. Do you, do you ever have those moments? Not once. <laughs> really? No. I heard a comic talking about that being sort of like his uh, his entrance into embracing his aging, where he just thought, maybe I'm a prodigy chess player, but I just never tried the right chess game, or just That's letting really things funny. die. He's like, oh, I guess I'm, I guess I'm just 45 now. I guess, I guess. I'm just in my 40s. <laughs> yeah, like, I woke up. And I was like, you know, when you sleep on your arm wrong and you're like, oh, that'll just wake up. But that's what I was like, oh, I slept on it wrong. I'm like, oh, that's not what that is at all. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my don't typing you hand. Love, <laughs> don't you also love, hand. though, that like a, a pretty um, a pretty reasonable like morning injuries that you slept on it weird? Yes. I like, wake up like, oh, I must have slept a half an inch wrong on my neck. That's why I can't move my head at all. I totally felt it, too, because he was way too far away. And I threw we had thrown in a couple. But I just chucked it in. My, I immediately felt it. I was like, oh, that was dumb. Oh, right away you knew. Yeah, but then it didn't hurt all night. Like, you're just fine. But then you go to bed and then you wake up like, oh, no. So. And your body sneak attacks. Like, now we're going to tell yep. you how you really feel. It's just a different body part screams. You're in your 40s now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, if you want to see us complain about our age, you can go to Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com slash The Common Good Plus. And many of you already know this. You can find us wherever it is you get podcasts. And uh, if you like, subscribe, and review, that does somehow magically help us. And if you hit that little share button... We're still a new show, so all of that really, really is appreciated and helpful. And uh, one of the things that I appreciate about this dialogue, this sort of ongoing conversation, is that we pretty regularly hear perspectives that we hadn't heard before, whether that's in-studio guests or just reading from sources that maybe we don't read all the time or whatever. And uh, I feel like we, we end up coming back to social media and how we consume information and how we can have like a better dialogue with people that we disagree with. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I'd love for us, maybe once we've done this for a full year, to like look back over our shoulder and ask, have we gotten any better at this? Like, is this a thing? Because I feel like we have. Do but we I don't get know. to answer that or do other people get oh, to answer gosh. that? Yeah, the latter sounds terrifying. If it's going to be you and I self diagnosed, I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> I found this uh, article, it's a, it's a few years old on uh, NPR, and it, it just simply says, fake or real, how to self check the news. And get the facts, which I think is something all of us want yeah. at the end of the day, right? Yeah, Regardless so. of your political, theological persuasion. I think what we all desire is what's true, is yeah. what's actually right. 
So uh, why don't you walk us through a little bit of what this article is saying? Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think that people, even the most uh, polarized people are out there going, I want to be faked, right? So right. Nobody wants to be in their echo chambers. They still believe the truth uh, of their side. But um, th- there is this whole genre uh, of fake news. And the story begins here. Fake news stories can have real life consequences uh, and fake news can be a big problem. Uh, and so it says stopping the proliferation of fake news isn't just the responsibility of the platforms used to spread it. Hmm. Those who consume the news also need to find ways of determining if what they're reading is true. And so they're going to offer some tips here about how to do that. But I do think as Christ followers, uh, we should be particularly concerned about truthfulness hmm. and uh, and not not being the ones who pass along. And, and man, tell me there is no worse feeling than when you see somebody in your church or a friend of yours like hopefully unknowingly pass on that story on Facebook that you're like, yeah, that's just not true. But, but, but once it gets out there, it's out there uh-huh. and it goes, I always, I don't know why I always feel compassionate for people, even though they're the ones that shared it. I was like, no, take it back. It's not true. But yeah, do, before I go through the list, why do you think this issue of fake news is actually such a big deal? You know what? I've seen a couple of interactions over the last few years where, like I have uh, some siblings in particular that are really, really smart, really, really thorough in their research, and they will consistently call people out if someone posts an article that's just egregious or inflammatory or outright wrong. And what baffles me is the disparity of differences between how, how people respond. Sometimes people say, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. Thank you for that yeah. uh, context or that backstory. That's really interesting. But sometimes – after they'll weigh in and say, hey, that's just 100% not true. That's inaccurate. The site you shared is wrong. They'll The person will respond like, damn, I still think it's funny. Or I still think <laughs> – I'm like – yep. so it's like knowingly flinging falsities out into the ether. Yep, yep. And to me, I think – all right, again, not to be the get-off-my-lawn guy because mm-hmm. we post memes and funny stuff all the time yep. that's meant to be satirical or it's meant to be funny or you know, hopefully it's obvious that it's you know a, a parody. Right. Uh, but gosh, sometimes the posture of like – even though you just exposed that what I shared is incorrect, I I feel no responsibility to take it down right. or to redact my statement or like that posture to me is part of what I think you're saying is like, all right, now it's out there. Yeah. And now other people who aren't seeing this conversation are also reading this going, oh, my gosh. And then at dinner that night, they're going, did you know yep. that so-and-so or the, yep. this pastor or the, this politician? You're like, that's – I think we just need to care more about – ideas and the facts behind those ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this article at NPR uh, gives a few best practices people can use. And I love them because they're really practical. So as you're looking, these are particularly online. Like if you're finding stories online, these are particularly that. Number one, it says pay attention to the domain and the URL. It says established news organizations usually own their domains and they have a standard look that you probably are familiar with. Sites with such endings as .com, .dat, .co should make you rise, raise your eyebrows mm. and tip you off that this might not be, uh, uh, should not be trust, should not be trusted. For example, abcnews.com is a legitimate news source, but abcnews.com.co is not, oh. despite its similar appearance. Uh, their next suggestion is read the About Us section. Most sites will have a lot of information about the news outlet, the company that runs it, members of leadership, and the mission and ethics statement behind an organization. The language used here is straightforward. If it's melodramatic and seems overblown, you should be skeptical. Also, you should be able to find out more information about the organization's leaders in places other than that site. That's good. That's good. Number three, look at the quotes in a story 
Or rather, look at the lack of quotes. <laughs> Most publications have multiple sources in each story who are professionals and have expertise in the fields that they talk about. If it's a serious or controversial issue, there are more likely to be more quotes and lots of them. Look for professors or other academics who can speak to the research they've done. And if they are talking about research, take the time to look up those studies. Gosh, this is starting to sound like work. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I just right. want to read my news. <laughs> uh, which is kind of the point, I isn't know. it, right? I know. Uh, look at who said them. So it says, then see who said the quotes and what they said. Are they a reputable source with a title that you can verify through a quick Google search? Say you're looking at a story and it says President Obama and he wanted to take everyone's guns away. And then there's a quote. Obama is an, uh, an official who has almost everything he says recorded and archived. There are transcripts for pretty much any address or speech he has given. Google those quotes. See what the speech was about, who he was addressing, and when it happened. Even if uh, he did an exclusive interview with the publication, that same quote will be referenced in other stories yeah. saying he said it while ta- uh, talking to the original publication. That's a good one. Here's a dangerous one. Check the comments. Oh, boy. A lot of these fake and misleading stories are shared on social media platforms. Headlines are meant to get the reader's attention, but they're also supposed to accurately reflect what the story's about. Hmm. Lately, that hasn't been the case. Headlines often will, written to exagger- will be written in exaggerated language with the intention of being misleading and then attached to stories that are about a completely different topic or not so true. These stories usually generate a lot of comments on Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> if a lot of these comments call out the article for being fake or misleading, it probably is. Oh, snap. And even that one's dangerous because that's a little bit of groupthink mob mentality, which can go sour, can yep. go south for sure. And this last one I think is actually a really helpful helpful tool. Reverse image search. A picture should be accurate in illustrating what the story is about. This often doesn't happen. If people who write these fake news stories don't even leave their homes or interview anyone for the stories, it's unlikely that they take their own pictures. Do a little detective work and reverse search for the image on Google. You can do this by right-clicking on the image and choosing to search Google for it. Mm. If the image is appearing on a lot of stories about many different topics, there's a good chance it's not actually an image of what it says it was in the first story. That's crazy. That's a really, it's a very common thing, though. I don't know if you've ever done the reverse image search, but it's uh-uh. a really, really helpful tool. There, I mean, the takeaway from here is do the work. It takes the work. work to try to uncover it, and that's why a lot of us fall for stuff. <laughs> but not that much work. Though. No. It's achievable. This yes. is the kind of work that I think, and I love what you said at the beginning, as Christ followers in particular, we yes. should care about what is actually true. Absolutely. Okay, so that one was kind of heavy. This next one's going to be a little lighter, right? Okay, so here's the headline. Uh, Sciencey reasons you should listen to new music. Mm. So this one's going to be a lot of fun. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was, and it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Thank you. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And uh, we're cold today. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. It's <laughs> colder than we probably should be. I'm wearing the Brian Fromm hoodie, though, so I feel a real kindred energy right now. It yeah, feels I, like... I, I should... I should uh... I should um, go back to the cardigan of yours. So we you know, kind of re- do you own a cardigan? Back. No, I don't. So I have to borrow one. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if someone's listening and wants to donate a cardigan to Brian Fromm, I obviously Ooh. could, but I don't. No. I love my cardigan. I'd like your Thursday cardigan. <laughs> <laughs> my, oh, I wish I was that classy. I had a professor in college, by the way. This is not at all what we're talking about, but he used to match all of his ties with his coffee mugs each day. Impressive. And he never said anything about it. So you'd get like a month and a half into class, and you're like, wait a minute. Do his ties always match his mug? And then we started paying attention, and it turns out they most absolutely certainly did. I saw a guy the other day, and his hat – and we're just talking like a baseball hat, like not like some yeah. fancy hat, like a baseball hat. Yeah. Perfectly matched color-wise his jacket, <laughs> uh, like whatever. And I was thought to myself, like, is that coincidental? Right. Or does he have enough – like it wasn't like a nice winter coat. It was kind of you – know, it was almost like just kind of a pullover or like a – right. And his hat, I mean, it wasn't even like a normal color. It was kind of like an aqua. And I'm like, look at this. Does he have all these hats lined up and all matching? And I'm like, that would be awesome. Well, I remember when I was in India and I, uh, you know, so, you know, the, um, the dot on the forehead that you'll often see, particularly in, uh, in Hindu traditions, it's called a bindi. Okay. And uh, traditionally it's red, but it's also been commercialized like everything. And so there are some, I didn't even realize this, much like, there are people who are sort of fringe Christians, and they're like, I'll wear a cross, yeah, yeah. but I'm not really going to church. They'll make different color bindis that no women can wear to match their outfit for the day. So they'll have a green bindi with their green sari. That's and awesome. it was, it was so, so it's like, oh, we do this everywhere in the world. That's this awesome. is just a thing that we all do. I try to wear the same – I try to wear matching socks, and otherwise, like, that's, that's, an, that's a good day for me if I can oh, pull that off. I'm not even there. I made the mistake of getting a couple of different, like, multicolored packs. Not – like the socks themselves aren't multicolored, but it's like, oh, it's a blue pair, yep. a brown pair, yep. a gray pair. I can never nope. – this is not newsworthy at all. I just can't ever find a match. And I'm – like today. Today my socks don't match. <laughs> I like I was like searching through my door and I was like, I don't care. It's Your not, shoes match. You're they, good. Yeah, right. I, I'm wearing long pants. No one's going to see them. Long pants Except for everyone on the radio show that I tell. <laughs> well, anyway, hard right turn. So sciencey reasons you should listen to new music. As we were reading this, you were like, brain science, that's all you. It's yours. It's yours. I don't know that I like that association. You're the brain guy. I'm like, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. I like brain science, but I know such a teeny tiny amount about it. But uh, I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs. And you, you'll often say, oh, I'm not the music guy. But you I listen like to, music, to music, though. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. this, is a, this is an interesting article. It says, there's an excitement that comes from listening to a new song, especially one you love. It may become part of one of your playlists or evoke an emotional response years later, cementing itself into your life and identity. But at some point... Our taste for new music dwindles, eventually reaching a paralysis point in our late 20s or early 30s, research suggests. In 2018, the French streaming service Deezer, which I had never heard of. But a cool name. A really cool name. (laughs) Surveyed 5,000 people and found that, on average, people stopped seeking out new music right around their 28th birthdays. Though the reasons varied, most said uh, saying that they were too busy to find new music or too overwhelmed by all of the new releases. So quick pause. Do you find that to be true? Has your has your like appetite for new music dwindled over the last decade or so? Oh yeah, I would really? say that, but with a caveat. I would say like right now, uh, this is really random, but I'm so excited because <laughs> I have like a three day free like trial of uh, of uh, 
of uh, Sirius XM radio in my oh. car right now. Ooh, It'll fancy. go away. It right. happens like every quarter because they want you to buy it. Right. And I found the Lithium channel, which is like every song from when I was in high school. Uh-huh. And that's all I listen to right now. Like I feel <laughs> that. My caveat to this is that I now have kids uh, who listen to music. And so I am kind of listening to their music and go, oh, okay, I kind of like that. Oh, you know? really? So I wouldn't say that I'm personally searching out new music. In fact, when I'm listening to music, it's usually older stuff from when I was uh-huh. younger. But like in the car, it's all the stuff my kids listen to. So I am getting some of that. Well, we, And I was just having this conversation with some people at the station, too, how with music, like when we go to see a band live, we only want them to play the hits. Yes. But when we go to see like a comedian live, we only want new material. Mm. And I thought how interesting it is that we have this like nostalgia for one art form, but for yeah. the other one, we look at don't tell me any of your old stuff. I want only the new stuff. <laughs> it goes on. It says uh, Spotify in a similar survey in 2015 found that people reached that paralysis point in their 30s. But numerous studies suggest that taking an active interest in music can be beneficial to our brains as we get older. Here's why you should toss out that 10 year old driving playlist and find something new. As humans, we yearn to feel strong emotions. When that happens, chemicals rush to our brain, causing us to feel pleasure and sometimes pain. But as we get older and enter adulthood, the routine of life can become void of those emotions. Valerie Salampour, author of The Brain and New Music and conductor of numerous studies on how humans react to art, says our drive to experience strong emotions is why we like art and music. She says uh, people usually lead fairly routine lives. And they don't get the chance to experience intense emotions that are almost cathartic to us. As we age, we lose opportunities to experience that. So I'll pause again. Mm-hmm. Do you find that to be true? And do you, is there a part of you, I was having a conversation just a couple of nights ago with a friend. He was like, man, I actually really like that my life is predictable now. Yeah, my, my punk rock 16-year-old self can't fathom a universe where I like the regularity of a commute to work and TV with my kids no. and coffee with my wife, but he's like, I actually find a lot of comfort in it. I totally get that. That's Do you really? really funny okay. to read that that way. I totally get that. Like my favorite days now are like when when I look at my calendar, I'm like, oh, we have nothing tonight. Like we're all going to be home, <laughs> and there's nothing. Like we're not driving kids here. I don't have a meeting here, and right. it's like we're all going to be home. I I I do get that. I hadn't really thought about that, but I I enjoy when it's kind of. Normal. Well, and that's uh, it's a good caveat because I don't think that's bad. I don't think no. this author's saying that either. But the article goes on and says, when we listen to genres of music we like, pleasure centers in our brain connect to strong emotions. And and then we talk about this, even like the nostalgia of, you know, you're a big Bon Jovi guy. Mm-hmm. It's not just for, about the music for you. Yep. It's like it represents an era in your life. Yep. And you think back to when you first heard Bon Jovi. Goes on to say, uh, some of the most powerful chemicals in the brain can be released in response to music. Humans can experience intense pleasure in response to aesthetic stimuli. But those good brain chemicals can be even more powerful when we listen to new music in anticipation of what may come next, Salampour said. As long as a new song adheres to certain patterns our brain is familiar with, its newness can give an added boost. The pleasure of listening to new music can even help with mental illness like depression, especially when hmm. it's enjoyed in a group setting, said Caesar Quillian, a physician at Metro Health in Orlando. Uh, it goes on to say, there's a joy that music can bring to people's lives. Listening to music in a group setting, for example, adds a social aspect to the activity, which can prevent feelings of isolation. In other words, whether you're participating in formal music therapy or simply listening to music you enjoy, the end result is a happier more content life, hmm. which I find not only fascinating, but also interesting because you and I both pastor churches. Mm-hmm. And this idea of experiencing music in a collective communal sense yep. is something that we do weekly on a weekly basis. Yep. And I wonder, do you think 
that through in terms of like what your weekly space, weekly gathering looks like and what that might be doing physiologically or neurologically to the people that are there? No, not at all. (laughs) And it is an interesting, as you were reading, I was like, what does this mean for worship music? What does this Mm -hmm. mean for Sunday morning? Because most people go, I want the stuff I know, the stuff back there. Um, Yeah, what do you do with this? Is either already you're actively doing or now this makes you think, huh, maybe I should see this in a different way. How about yourself? Well, so the article goes on, we don't have time to get into it, but talks about how the brain craves anticipation and anticipation comes uh, in some ways by not knowing what comes next. So a lot of times in churches, you know, we're like, oh, they're always doing songs we don't know. And there is, again, a ton of value to singing the songs we know, right? They're already like deeply uh, internalized, they're embedded in sort of our, our psyche. I think that's really important. But singing together is also what scientists call a neurological force amplifier. Okay. So what that, what that means is singing even badly together with other people does something in your brain, uh, particularly neuroplasticity, which makes you more receptive to learning wow. and also bonds you emotionally to the people that you're with. So when I think about a Sunday gathering – those are two things we definitely want to see, right? Yeah. A receptivity yeah. to the word of God and also like a, an increased sense of communal life and singing. Mm. We're now seeing over and over again actually helps accomplish some of that in the brain. And that's why I think articles like this are really interesting. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I think I was uh, either, either way. I'd love to know what you guys think. Well, uh, this is already on the Facebook page. If you want to go to Facebook, go to the common good radio show and share your thoughts and maybe some new music for us. We would be uh, happy to Mighty expand Mouse. our horizons a little bit. <laughs> Not Mighty Mouse. What is it? <laughs> Modest Mouse. Modest Mouse. <laughs> also Mighty Mouse. Oh, I would love to go home and watch that now. All right. I embarrass in- <laughs> myself segment by segment here sometimes. <laughs> All right. In hard right news. Hard right news? No. Hard, hard right, right turn. turn news. Coming up next. Why Christians should talk more openly about our finances. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find digital versions of us mm. all over the place. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Uh, also, wherever it is you get podcasts, if that is you, liking, subscribing, and reviewing does really, really help us out. Even if it's just one sentence, somehow that affects the algorithm and it's all sorts of black magic that I don't understand. But so just do it. We do it. So just do it. <laughs> What a, what a kind plea, Brian. <laughs> Please just do it. <laughs> Can you imagine if that was Nike's slogan? Please just, Please do, just it. do it. That's like the Jeb Bush Nike. <laughs> Please clap. Please. Please. We're Please. off the rails today. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is a topic I feel like if I had guessed a year ago that we would talk about this topic as much as we do, uh-huh. I would not have believed it. Mm-hmm. But it seems to come up a lot, finances in particular. And uh, it's an interesting one because we've brought it up in a couple of different ways and people respond very differently. I think, for example, when we did the story about preacher sneakers, and if you remember, it was an Instagram account that was sort of showing pictures of pastors with really expensive shoes on and then the photo of the shoe and then the list price of that shoe. And you and I are both kind of like, isn't that's a little ridiculous? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were like, "Eh, it's their money. They can do what they want. I was like, oh, so – Finance is a really – it's just an interesting topic and it's something that I think um, Christians in particular would do well to talk more about. And this is a, an article that you found mm-hmm. from the Gospel Coalition. It says, why Christians should talk more openly about our finances. Yep. What's going on here? Yeah. They say right at the top, finances feel like a private matter and yet they affect so much of our lives and reveal so much about our hearts. 
that this author says, I wonder if we should talk more openly about them. What are some reasons to share more transparently about finances within our churches and how can we do that? And, and uh, th- like you said, this is a this is a, a gray area for people, right? Like we'll talk about a lot of things, but finances seem to be one that we don't like to. Yet oftentimes when we preach about finances, I'm sure you've done it a lot. I've done a lot. What do we always say, right? Jesus talked a lot about finances. Mm -hmm. It's clearly a big deal in our discipleship. So we need to. And so uh, this article is trying to say we should talk more openly and transparently about them. But we would love to hear from you about this article. If you're like, no, I don't think this author, the actual premise is right. Right. Because the rest of the article works under the premise that we should, that Mm -hmm. it would be good for us. But a lot of you probably don't agree with that. Hmm. But the author says the only way to move past this discomfort is by reminding ourselves why it's important and being willing to open up first. Here are three reasons why transparency is wise. So we're going to give her argument, the author's argument, and then would love to hear your feedback or your pushback on it. Reason number one, finances are a common cause of marital conflicts. Uh-huh. Money is a tension point about, among married couples, regardless of income level, and is often listed as a leading cause of divorce. To care for couples experiencing financial tension or disagreements, our churches must be places where the topic is discussed openly and in detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, here are questions we should regularly discuss to strengthen our marriage. Are you making any significant financial decisions without the support of your spouse? Hmm. Has your spouse expressed concern that you're being frivolous, stingy with money? Did you listen humbly? Are you praying together about how you could best steward the money? Has trust been broken? I don't know about you, but when I do premarital counseling with people, yeah. there's always one week where we talk about money. Uh-huh. And I always ask the question, um, I don't let them look at each other and I say, okay, how much money can you spend without telling the other? Yeah, right. And I say, I count to three and say, you have to, okay, <laughs> one, two, three. Yeah. And the, the most, the one time I'll never forget, uh, the woman said $500 at the exact time the man said $20. Holy cow. And I just said, okay. guys, I said, I'm not saying which one of you is right or wrong. Right. I'm just saying you're, you're in for some pain. There yeah, you got to talk about conversation without our, especially within our marriages about money. I think that's an FPU uh, move, isn't it? I think that's where I first oh, saw that, right? that. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think he had like little whiteboards or something. The same, same kind of thing though. Yeah. And I, I, I can't tell you how many. The couples I've walked with that had the exact same experience. And marriages would probably, even people married for many years would probably not write the same thing. Right. You haven't talked about it. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because this isn't just for newlyweds. This is no. for, this is, this needs to be a continued conversation. I remember doing like a group thing and that really, everyone asked that same question. Everyone was around the, you know, 50, 100. Yep. One couple said $2,000. Oh, gosh. I want to be married to you. <laughs> <laughs> but they, and they like agreed on it, but the rest of us were like, Wait, what? <laughs> That's wild. Man. We were well, whatever. Okay, so reason number two, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, reasons that we should maybe consider being more open about our finances. Reason number two: teaching financial responsibility is an act of love. A debt burdens many. Sometimes it's unavoidable, and we shouldn't make premature judgments. That said, debt is also often attribu- attributable to discontent, which leads to ungodly spending habits, or to a lack of discernment, which leads to unwise ones. The consequences uh, plummet countless Christians into crisis. If we talk freely about finances, we can help each other avoid financial disaster. Humbly seeking input from wiser people will curtail common pitfalls. And graciously offering input when a brother or sister is not exercising godly stewardship will serve them and help prevent future strains. Okay, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to like confront a close friend or a family member, a family member because of their spending habits? Have I ever? I don't think so. 
I think it's been more general conversations. I remember having the closest was that there was somebody close to us who was clearly uh, outspending what they could. Hmm. Um, it was more of a group of us got to them, and I wasn't actually the one delivering the harder conversation. Uh, okay. And so, uh, yeah, no, how about yourself? Have you done that? Uh, maybe, I mean, I'm the eldest brother, so I yeah. feel like maybe when my some of my siblings were still pretty young, yeah. possibly, but I don't know that I've done it much in adulthood. The, the questions at the end of this reason are really good, though. Are you spending money that you don't have? If so, why? And do you have a clear plan for paying it back? Are you proactively seeking to grow in contentment? That's a great question. Mm. Do your spending habits indicate you're more concerned with your earthly or eternal home? <laughs> are you making short-sighted <laughs> decisions or considering how they will affect your future? That's Those good. are solid questions. That's man. good. Reason number three, uh, generosity diminishes the lore of greed. Mm. All sin is common to man, and greed and materialism aren't ex- exceptions. Uh, one crucial way we can combat these temptations is by encouraging one another toward generosity. Uh, examples of this permeate scripture. Job, Job was known and respected for his generosity. Paul told the Corinthian church about generosity. Zacchaeus, in his public act of repentance, declared some generosity. The author says, if we humbly disclose how God has led to alter our budgets and lifestyles to prioritize generosity, it will encourage others to reevaluate their own habits and goals. Hmm. If we enthusiastically share about the ministries we support, it will inspire others to consider how they can invest in God's kingdom as well. So here are some questions. How have you prioritized living generously in this season of life? Uh, How are you most tempted to be selfish with your money and possessions? How are you battling those temptations? Does fear of the future prevent you from giving now? Are you cultivating a compassion for the poor and a passion for gospel endeavors? I like this one because this is saying within churches, as we celebrate generosity and specific generosity of people and give opportunities for generosity, people get excited about that and and drawn to it. So it's not just guilting people about their money. Don't spend on this. It's going, hey, here's a better way to do it. And look how... Uh, look how your fellow uh, parishioner here is doing that. Not just the pastor or the right. church, but, hey, that person sitting down the pew from you, they're sponsoring this kid. They're doing this. And look at the joy it's giving them. And they're saying this will spur on greater generosity in others. And that's always a catch-22 because I feel like a lot of times people don't want their generosity highlighted. Uh, you know, They're sure. not doing it for the spotlight. They're not doing it for the recognition. But I think there's something really profound about – because money, money does really have, I think, a stronghold on a lot of us. And there's – so much we place so much security and identity and purpose into it. Yes, but the people that have have been willing to take the leap and loosen their white knuckle grip and to see everything they have as a gift on loan to them in the first place, when you make it to the other side of that and you actually are able to live generously, yep. there legitimately is a lightness that comes with that, and people almost become like evangelists for generosity. That's right, because it's so counterintuitive. You're like, why would I? One, ever give away what I you know, worked hard for. Yes. Two, why would I share any of what we're doing with anyone else? But if you make it to the other side of health, it's like, oh, now I want everyone else to know this. Yeah. Generosity seems so counterintuitive. And then when you actually step into it, you're like, oh, I'm a happier, healthier person as a result. And it's sort of like, yeah, it's almost as if God designed us that yeah. way. Yeah, what, what a novel idea. All right, well, coming up next, I love this headline. Evangelism isn't about results. So what could it possibly be Mm. about, Brian Fromm? We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, who is just stretching. Oh, I thought thought you were bobbing your head. You're like, I'm I'm so so tired of hearing Ian's intro. No, 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 no. Do you ever feel like doing the intro? Let's just get a peek behind the curtain. You know those people that manage like the roller coasters? 
Yeah. And they're given like the same the same spiel oh, yeah. seventeen thousand times yep, a day. Do yep, you ever yep. just feel like you go on autopilot for the like, hey, welcome back little dance that we do? Yes. Really? Yes. What That's is a- yours again? Do it. You do yours as if we just came back. Hey, welcome back to The Common Good. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. It's always alongside. Alongside. To the That's point right. that last week when I was doing them every day, I, I, there was one I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. I'm like, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Brian Fromm with Ian Simpkins. <laughs> but there is like a legitimate pause. Totally. I, I'm I, a alongside guy. <laughs> I tr- I'm an alongside guy. Tell me about your friend Brian. Well, he's an alongside guy. That's for sure. <laughs> I also had a moment a couple weeks ago where I, I also was trying to change it up. And in so doing... Completely forgot the website. Completely screwed <laughs> up the Facebook. You. And that's what I get for like trying to veer from the autopilot. But the, I just the wonder. The funny thing is when I do veer a little bit, you always look up like, what was that? Like, hey, everybody. <laughs> well, for the first couple of months, that's how I did it. Yeah. I did every single rejoin completely different. Yeah. Which, I think I've, I'm, I'm more, uh, uh, I, I think I go back to the same one more than you do. You kind of come back Southern accent sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing necessarily, though. You're just stating a fact. You're not saying whether it's good or not. I'm going to start to introduce myself. Hey, I'm Brian Fromm, alongside my wife here. (laughs) Like when I'm out with her, I'm going to alongside everybody. Hey, I'm alongside my child. (laughs) Oh, like out in the world. You're going to say, yeah, yeah, let me know how that goes. (laughs) All right, so out of Christianity today, uh, here's the headline. I just like the headline already, but uh, it says evangelism isn't about results. The parable of the sower frees us from our desire for resolution. Mm -hmm. There is a ton packed in that statement. This is another one that I think you chose. Before we get into it, I want to know why you chose this particular article. I think growing up in the evangelical church, you and I both grew up in Christian Missionary Alliance churches. And one of the great things that these churches do is to pound home uh, evangelism, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be sharing your faith. You're supposed to be talking to your neighbors or to your classmates when you're Mm -hmm. younger. And I think that's good, right? We do the work of an evangelist. But they it gets done sometimes in weird ways where it's like, if you're not closing the deal, <laughs> right, then right. there's something wrong with you. And so, you know, you're that you're that young <laughs> junior higher and you're you're really nervous and like, I don't know, I'm supposed to go to see you at the poll so that my kid my friends see that I love Jesus, or mm. I'm supposed to and uh, you and I were laughing off air. We're both, as Christian Missionary Alliance uh, people, we both went to something called Operation Good News. That's right. <laughs> and uh, I almost said Operation Christmas Child. Too many operations. Yeah, a lot of operations. Operation Good News, which was, uh, in theory, a really cool idea. We are going to bring you somewhere. What my, The one I went to, we were at the Jersey Shore. Like, we were right there. Look at you. And... Uh, what would happen is in the morning, we would get like uh, – it was like classroom. This is how you did it. It was like you were in a classroom almost, uh-huh. like how to evangelize. And then in the afternoon, they would take you, high school kid, with uh-huh. somebody else. For us, they dropped us literally on the boardwalk of Atlantic City. Wow. <laughs> and you had a clipboard, and you were just supposed to go up to people right. and just be like, uh, let me ask you these questions. It was so awkward. But what was most, your like lead-in? What was your? I don't even remember. I don't remember. A moment of your time, sir? For, for a religious hey, conversation, Brian, alongside this other person I just met, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Uh, but it was just super awkward. Yeah. And then the one of the weirdest parts is, and I don't know if this was your experience, in the evening you'd come back, everybody would gather again after mm-hmm. dinner, and there was literally a scoreboard on the wall for the number of conversions made uh-huh. from these kind of cold call, these kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And it just felt very salesy, right? Yeah, right. It felt very Glenn, very Glenn Ross, right? Yeah. And so you're <laughs> like, well, I better say I three people prayed the prayer or whatever. <laughs> 
And uh, and I remember a youth pastor getting up and challenging the people like this is wrong. And they were like, nope, this is how we do it. And uh, the reason I've told that story multiple times to people is because that uh, that week actually did more to hurt my Mm. view of evangelism and my desire to evangelize because it felt like you got to go be a sales guy and you've got to be so bold and you've got to close every deal and the pressure's on you uh, that I was like, well, I don't want to ever do that again. That felt, that was awful. (laughs) And so this article is, once I saw the title evangelism isn't about results, I love that posture. I love that posture. What was what was your kind of evangelism upbringing like? Well, it was very, very similar, only we weren't in the Jersey Shore. We would just get dropped off at a mall or something somewhere. Yep. One of the Operation Good News that we went to was in Salt Lake City. So it was you like- did this multiple times. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh for sure. For sure. And I remember one of the sessions being like, just like rapid fire, how to dismantle every other belief system. It was like, if you meet a Muslim, just tell them this. Really? If you meet a Mormon, just tell them this. And it was like a one-sentence oh, reply. Salt Lake City. <laughs> yeah, right. But I remember each- each category having like a one sentence silver bullet. And even at like 14, I remember thinking, wait a minute, their whole faith dismantles with this one. Has no one told them this? Like that's, but like really feeling like exactly like what you're saying. Like, okay, it's, it's about this scoreboard, which, you know, to some degree, the boldness aspect of it can, I think be really helpful. You know, I can certainly be, I think everyone can be prone to uh, timidity and sometimes even cowardice when it comes to sharing our faith. So there's certainly were some benefits to that, but yeah, having to kind of process through that as an adult. So let's, I want to share a little bit of this uh, yeah, article because I think it's really helpful. And it opens by saying, how can we evangelize with integrity? As my husband and I lead our church together, this is a question we wrestle with a lot, namely in our enthusiasm to see people come to know Christ. How do we resist the temptation of results-driven ministry? Mm. Which is a much bigger question than just evangelism. Yep. We talk about this a lot. Uh, it goes on to say, as we've processed these questions and temptations regarding evangelism, we have found ourselves both chastened and encouraged by the parable of the sower, which is in Matthew 13. In this famous story, Jesus uses an analogy that would have been familiar to his Palestinian audience. According to Bible scholar William Barclay, farmers at the time would have sown their seed in one of two ways, either casting out the seed by hand or strapping a bag of seed to the back of a donkey and tearing a hole in the sack and letting Mm -hmm. the seed spill out as the animal crossed the field. In both scenarios, the seed would have been vulnerable to the the variables such as wind, or rocky terrain, but because of these two different practices, the identity of the sower in the parable remains unclear. Perhaps we are the human sower, or perhaps we are the farmer's donkey, but it is God who gives the growth, 1 Corinthians 3, 7. In this way, the parable is symbolic of three actors who are present in the sharing of the gospel, you, the hearers, and God. And until we understand these roles properly, the work of evangelism will be much harder and more burdensome than God ever intended. Hmm. I'm going to stop there and just let you kind of weigh in on that. Oh, it's so true. That that whole concept of being burdensome and being results driven is, um, man, I feel that. I have felt that. I think, like I said, I think that was the number one thing that caused pressure and fear in me to not want to share my faith. Right. Um, and so this, this parable, and, and the article goes on to talk about how the parable, right? Like, it depends. There's a hearer has a responsibility with the whole point of the soil. The spirit has a big responsibility mm-hmm. that we just have one one responsibility in this and results is not one of our responsibilities. Well, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up with this because it, it does break it out. It talks about our yeah. role, the hearer's role, and then ends with the spirit's role. It says so much of horticulture is outside of human control. Yes. We cannot control the elements. We cannot control the wind, the drought, the floods, or the pests. Sowing the word of God is similar. There is much we cannot control. 
In Corinthians 3.6, the Apostle Paul makes an important observation about the work of sowing. He affirms the value of evangelism, and he doggedly casts out seed, but he also writes, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. When it comes to evangelism, our roles matter, but our role is also limited, and this truth can unburden us. Whenever we feel the pressure to convince people or feel tempted to make our gospel nicer, we are wise to remember that salvation is the Spirit's work. The Spirit can take our words and make them just the right shape for another's heart. The Spirit can translate our message about one situation into a myriad of different mm-hmm. life scenarios. And it ends, I think this is beautiful. It says, this is the heading, evangelism's one sure thing. Evangelism challenges our desire for resolution. We often want results we can point to, much mm-hmm. like the scoreboard you're referencing. Yep. And faithful evangelism cannot promise us this. The parable of the sower meets us in this ambiguity, as does Jesus himself. Not only does our Savior cast out the seed of his words, but he also casts out the seeds of his life. It strikes me that some approaches to evangelism neglect the sowing of our words, while others neglect the sowing of our lives. That's good. But as Jesus' followers, we are called to follow him in both. We sow by speaking the whole truth with boldness and by laying our lives down in love. Neither guarantees a response in our hearers' lives, but they do guarantee one thing, granting as many people as possible a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God. I think that is such such an important, helpful challenge. As two CMA boys, yes. uh, I'm most certainly <laughs> encouraged and challenged by that, and uh, I hope that you are too. Well, coming up next, um, how Let's much do, do I want to tease this out? Not much. We're going to talk a little Franklin Graham. <laughs> A little Eric Metaxas, a little President Trump, and a whole lot of other things. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins alongside... Oh. <laughs> Moving into my territory. Yeah, sorry. I felt weird. I want to do it again. Brian Fromm is here, too. I'll just start saying it like that. People Brian's here. We, you and I think that of this as like one continuous show that people are in on the whole time. So people are like... Yeah, yeah what, what the heck? Yeah, why? Why did he say alongside like a Hit carnival marker? Twenty minutes on your uh, on your uh, podcast there. Yeah, they're like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> just for whatever weird inside joke this is. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, what's the website? 1160hope.com/slash/commongood. Also, podcast as Brian just mentioned, and uh, a topic that I think I don't know that we've gone a week without tackling in some way, shape, or form is politics. Right? Yes. As Christ followers. One of the things I'll often say is I don't think we should just engage with political discourse. We need to elevate it. Mm -hmm. And as Christians, sometimes quite the opposite seems to be true. And you do a good job of talking about um, what it looks like to, at times, as Christ followers, upset both the left and the right. And I think um, that's a sentiment that you've repeated a number of times. And I'd love to know, before we kind of get into this, why why is that so necessary and so difficult, do you think? Yeah, I think it's so necessary because – no party, uh, the Republicans or the Democrats, have cornered the market on holiness <laughs> and yeah, right, on right. on following Jesus. There right. are aspects of both sides where you can point to teachings of Jesus, uh, but sometimes when we as Christ followers get so uh, intertwined with a political party, uh, it kind of cheapens the gospel and, and it takes us out of our role as kind of almost a prophetic voice that's like, 
no, this isn't our kingdom. We're, we're, we have a different Lord, a different king, and right. we can speak to uh, the good and the bad of this culture that, that when we start acting like a political party or a politician is our king, it just gets really, really dangerous on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And, yes, we're supposed to pray for our politicians, absolutely, but we're not supposed to deify them. Right. And I, I worry that, especially in this next year as we head towards an election, uh, there's going to be deifying of uh, there's going to be a lot of God language used on both sides of the aisle. Like this is the person who most stands for Jesus. Right. And and I don't think that's our that's our role when we engage politically. I, don't, I think that's dangerous. Well, and you've said it. What do you, uh, the flag and the cross? Right. Yeah, when they right. when they're intertwined, that is a dangerous thing. Well, Franklin Graham was on the uh, Eric Metaxas show. And uh, just a few days ago, they were having a, an, an interesting dialogue about. The role of politics and religion and uh, a bunch of things were said. So rather than kind of chop it to pieces, I want to just play. Just listen to it. Yeah, kind of a kind of a long clip. It's about three minutes long. So I'd encourage you to, to really listen into this dialogue. And then uh, we're going to kind of weigh in. So here is their conversation between Franklin Graham and Eric McTexas. Well, you have not uh, shrunk from uh, talking politics. And a lot of people have uh, what I consider a profoundly unbiblical notion that uh, if you love Jesus, you're not supposed to talk politics or be political. Uh, I, I don't find that only wrong, but tremendously harmful. And so uh, you've been a hero to many because you've been willing to speak uh, about politics. And well, so what do you think of, of what is happening now? I mean, it's a very bizarre uh, situation to be living in a country where some people seem to exist uh, to to undermine the president of the United States, um, it, it's just a it's just a bizarre time for most Americans. Uh, well, I, I believe uh, it's almost a demonic power that is trying. I, I would disagree. It's not almost demonic. No, it's, I mean you know, you know and I know that at the heart it's a spiritual battle. It, it's a spiritual battle, and if you look at what the president has done, just just for our country, regardless of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, we have the unemployment is at the lowest in 70 years. More African-Americans are working, more Latinos are working, more Asians are working, more everybody is working. We have a, an economy that is uh, just uh, screaming forward. It's, it's incredible. Can, can you even imagine we're saying this? Because literally three years ago, our economy was dead yep. in the water, dead in the water. We all know it. And three years later, you just said it's screaming forward. That's a fact. It's, I mean, that's not fact. our opinion, right? And, and here, here's what that does for, for, for churches, for Christians. Um, that means more people are working, so there's more people tithing and giving to the churches. Uh, there's more money for missions. There's more uh, money for your building programs. Uh, all of this is because Donald Trump said he was going to turn things around and make America great again. He cut taxes. And that cutting taxes added fuel to this economic engine that we're enjoying right now. He's, he's not a politician. I appreciate that about him. He's a businessman. And that's what we've needed in our government, not politicians. We need businessmen. And he's done that. Well, it's, it's almost comedic because I know you've been vilified by people uh, for standing up for, for Trump. I have to, to a lesser extent because I've been less vocal, but... And I'm not as known as you are, but it's just a fascinating thing because people seem to devolve to a kind of moralistic Phariseeism and they say, how can you support somebody, blah, blah, blah. And then they go on to cite how he's the least Christian, you know, they go on and on. And I think 
these people don't they don't even have a biblical view when it comes to that you know that if somebody is uh doesn't hold to our theology that doesn't mean they can't be a great pilot or a great doctor or or dentist i mean it's a bizarre uh situation that we're in that that people seem only to have these standards for the for the president somehow you know i I believe that donald trump believes uh he believes in god he believes in Jesus Christ. Uh, his depth, um, he doesn't, uh, you know, he, he he went to churches here in New York. And yeah. He didn't get a whole lot of teaching. He, he knows there's two, there's two testaments, right? Yes. He knows that. Okay, we're going to go to a break. <laughs> All right, so we only have a couple of minutes left of the segment, but I'd love to know, now hearing that for the first time, how, how does that hit you? You know, I mean, it's just really dangerous to say if if you vote against somebody or don't support somebody that that is demonic. Yeah, like that's that is where the danger comes. You could agree with everything he said politically, and I'm go for it. Well, and he's not wrong about the economy. Yeah, right? I this is not a you're wrong to support Donald Trump or right to support him. This goes for all all candidates and all politicians for me. That to say that you're demonic and, and to spiritualize it that way is really, really dangerous to say, mm. you know, Rick Perry saying that Donald Trump is the chosen one, like to use this spiritual language. Like right. we only have one king. We only have one chosen one. So, again, you could think Donald Trump is the best option for our country. And sure. he gave good reasons why you could believe that. Right. Or you could be think he's a terrible option for our country. But to spiritualize it becomes really dangerous because then as a pastor, I could tell you, well, if you don't support person X, you know, you're on the wrong side uh, that God wants you. Well, that's really manipulative and really dangerous. And so for me, it's not about which candidate are you going for. For me, it's about uh, kind of more this feel of, um, uh, yeah, if just over spiritualizing uh, politics uh, to making it a a a. I'm for God or I'm against him by one politician, I just think is is wrong and dangerous. And I, I wonder why it's so uh, tempting for evangelicals to do exactly what you just said, because, again, they're not they're not wrong that, you know, a lot of these unemployment numbers, a lot of the economic growth is legitimate. And I don't think there's anything compromising by either of us saying, yeah, yeah that's real. That that is legitimate. And there I mean, there are a number of different responses, I think, in terms yeah. of how we actually measure GDP growth and what that really looks like in real time and who's really to credit for that. But I do think what you're saying, the, the demonizing or even, or even the um, glorifying in a unequivocal spiritual category when pertaining to political leaders is, is not only dangerous. I think it's part of what and we talked about this. I think yesterday is yep. part of what I think a non-believing world finds so disheartening and so, um, unchristlike. Yes, and it's not to say that we shouldn't still absolutely be praying for our leaders, and that there isn't still a certain authority that we are to submit under. I think all of that still applies, but to simply say anyone who opposes my guy is demonic, yeah, um, is I, I think a really, really frightening uh, theology and something that we, we need to be really intent on calling out when we see it. Yeah, and it's spiritually manipulative is what it is. It's, you know, people look up to guys like Franklin Graham or Eric Metaxas or to any pastor or to any church leader, uh, and it becomes manipulative to be, it, it's, it kind of feels along the same lines of like, if you love God, you're going to do this. You're going to give me money. You're going to do this. This is kind of, if you follow God, then you're going to vote for this guy. Well, 
politics is a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah, right? right. We all have our reasons for voting for particular people and thinking particular ways about what's best for our country that don't then call into question uh, the efficacy of our faith and whether or not we're actually a believer or we're on the side of demons. And yeah. that's where it becomes dangerous. Well, and that's, again, a, a big heartbeat of the show is that is there a possibility for us to find common ground? We're, we, we shared an article to the Facebook page from The Atlantic, and it is, you know, cards on the table, like quite left leaning. But yeah. it makes some pretty solid points, though, about even the universality, the uh, the evenness with which we hold politicians accountable, both right and left, and sort of the call to hopefully, I think, a better dialogue and a better way forward. And as always, we'd love to know what you think. We realize this is just a short segment about a really complex issue, but uh, where do you land in all this? How do we navigate uh, a better conversation going forward? We would love to hear from you, and uh, we would love to learn from you, to be honest. Yeah. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about uh, loneliness. Mm. You know, we're entering into the holidays, and it's something that um, more and more I'm realizing the holidays tend to be the toughest season for a lot of people. And so we're going to kind of take a deep dive into a really serious conversation, uh, but hopefully a helpful one. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with, alongside, gosh. Now, now I'm in your head. Now you're in my head. <laughs> right next to Brian Fromm <laughs> here on The Common Good. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcast. And if you're listening and you're thinking, man, I'm tired of them talking about the podcast. Well, if enough people like, subscribe, and review, and no, we're still going to keep talking about it. Never mind. That's tellable stuff. But <laughs> I'm not going to tell them that, Brian. Yep. People of truth, weren't we just saying that earlier, That's a good point. earlier in the show? I retract my statement. You are fake news. <laughs> uh, anywho, before we get into this next story, it's actually really two stories about loneliness and our need for community. Uh, you have some words about some pillows. Yeah, I have an exclusive offer for our listeners just in time for the holidays. Hmm. If you buy a set of Giza cotton sheets from my pillow, you'll get the second set for free. That's two for one. And not only that, you'll get free shipping. So if you add anything else to your order, like, you know, my pillows or mattress toppers, towels, anything, those items will also ship for free. Common good listeners can get deep discounts on all my pillow products, but you have to enter the promo code WYLL. My wife and I, uh, we got some of these sheets and pillows and also some of the towels. And I can affirm that they are as advertised. I You've never looked more rested. Nope. I, I would encourage you to go out and get some for the holidays. But all products uh, have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the Radio Listener Specials box, and get two sets of Giza cotton sheets for the price of one, plus free shipping on your entire order. So that's MyPillow.com. Click the Radio Specials box and enter promo code WYLL. Or call 1-800-489-0201. That's MyPillow.com, promo code W-Y-L-L. Well done, Brian. Thank you. Fromm. All right. Now, you want to talk about loneliness a little bit? I mean, I don't want to, but I, I think it's important. <laughs> it is. You're 100% right. In this time of year, yeah, uh, it's, it is like the best of times and the worst uh-huh, of times. For right. some of us, it is like over-the-top joyfulness. Right. Family, food, time off of work, fun, thankful, lots to be thankful for. But for others, the holidays just is like a magnifying glass mm-hmm. on their loneliness, on the hard year it's been, 
And they feel forgotten a lot of times because a lot of us, rightfully so, feel so joyous that we can kind of even forget that there are people struggling. So I do think it's the loneliness at this time of year is an important thing to discuss. Yeah. So this first story uh, begins by saying an elderly woman's courage has inspired hundreds of other senior citizens to speak out about their loneliness and isolation and thousands of younger people reach out to them. So here's some of the stories. So two years ago, a 37-year-old Missouri woman uh, came home to a handwritten note from a neighbor she had never met and said, would you consider uh, becoming my friend? I'm 90 years old. I live alone and all my friends have passed away. I am so lonesome and scared. Please, I pray for someone. The letter writer, Wanda Mills, also left her address. The recipient, Marlene Brooks, had lived almost directly across the street from her for a year and a half and they'd never met. I literally, honestly didn't know anyone lived there, she told the Washington Post. She recalled tearing up reading the letter as it reminded her of her own grandmother who had raised her and then died alone in hospice care, which still bothered her. The next day, Marlene and her friend arrived at Wanda's door with cupcakes. Wanda seemed surprised and excited by the visit as if she didn't believe it, Marlene said. She sat and talked with her for an hour, learning that Wanda had lived there for over 50 years and hadn't left the house for the past seven. She had congestive heart failure um, and was on oxygen and had trouble walking and relied on daily caregivers who visited the house daily, but they weren't the same as friends, she explained. I hope you didn't think I was stupid for writing you, but I had to do something. Oh, my gosh. Wanda's husband, uh, sister, and one of her sons had died. Another son actually lived next door but didn't visit often. Mm. Neighbors don't neighbor like people used to, Wanda told the Post. Neighbors used to visit each other, but they don't do that here. I guess they don't do that anywhere. So I tell this first story as, (laughs) I mean— just even the courage to write a letter and you can sort of, you can hear some of that even in her simple note. And the article goes on to say, lonely people have significantly higher rates of heart disease, cancer, dementia, high blood pressure, diabetes, infection, anxiety, depression, insomnia, addiction, and suicide. And I think, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And as you mentioned, particularly going into the holiday season, this is sort of like, I think for a lot of people, uh, all of the loneliness sort of spikes. It's like the reminder that people feel alone and um, I wanted to share another story briefly because I think the story is beyond believable. Right. And that's the second one here. It's the headline simply, it kind of tells it all. A man was found in his apartment three years after his death and what it can teach us about loneliness. And both of these are on the Facebook page, yep. so we won't have time to get into all of it. But um, the first story about the woman that had the courage to actually write a letter. The second story about a guy who was discovered on the floor of his apartment when workers went investigating why some tenants weren't using water for a while and, it says, stunningly, the medical examiner ruled that he had been dead for three years. I'd love to know, just as a pastor, as a person, as a human, how, how do stories like this hit you, particularly in this this season? So how do they hit me? They make me sad. Yeah. Honestly, uh, the one about the guy being dead in his apartment for three years is, is beyond comprehension to me. Yeah. But the one, the old lady one, really tugs at your heart where she says, you know, uh, she hadn't left her house for seven years. They do, people don't neighbor like they used to. Like I get it, man. Like we live such fast-paced lives. Maybe we're maybe we just think we live such fast-paced lives. Yeah, right. But whether we, you know, perception is reality, and so we're running and running and running, and then uh, you just don't even think sometimes about that person living by themselves across the street, or the old lady in your church who's always in the back and kind of talking to you. Like I feel it on Sunday morning, right? Like. That person wants to have a word with you and you just kind of have to run past them because you got to do X, Y, or Z. And sometimes that's legitimate. But, uh, you know, 
we can get so into our own heads and our own schedules about I have to do this, I got to get to here, I got to get to here. Oh, I have a moment to breathe. I can do this. That we forget that there might be somebody across the street from you. There might be somebody at the cubicle next to you. There might be somebody sitting down the pew from you at church who who is just breaking in loneliness. Mm-hmm. And it's, so when you ask me what effect does it have on me, it quite honestly, in a good way, I think, makes me feel really guilty. Hmm. Now, guilty, we always say, is a bad way. But I think this is kind of like some good holy guilt of going like, yeah, right. uh-oh, I think we call that conviction, right? And so – of going, hey, get out of your own space sometimes. You're not as important as you think. Uh, sometimes the role, not just of pastor, but of 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 a good person is to notice what's going on around uh-huh. you and care for people right. uh, in the ways that you can. Like it, These girls brought cupcakes to the lady's house, mm-hmm. and it changed that lady. It changed everything by just sitting and talking to her for an hour. But it took the lady having to write a letter going, I'm so lonely, please be my friend. Right. Uh, and you know what? I don't blame those girls because I would have I would have never noticed her probably. I would never have gone over there with cupcakes or yeah. whatever else. And so for me, these stories are a reminder to look up, have your eyes open, and that a lot of life is missed because we run so fast. Yeah, and we've talked about this before too, that that book I was referencing. There's a Japanese theologian who wrote a book called The, uh, the Three Mile an Hour God. His calculations was that Jesus walked approximately three miles an hour, yeah. and his whole kind of thesis is that maybe that's the speed of love, that when we go so fast, mm. that's how we end up missing the people in our lives that really could use love and care. And this first story, I love the way it continues. It says, wondering how many others were out there silently suffering in isolation, Marlene posted the letter on Facebook reminding people to check on their elderly neighbors and started a Facebook group called Pen Pals for Seniors with the intention of matching young and elderly participants. Within a month, she had 6,000 younger volunteers, far more than the 500 or so elderly people who reached out. One 40-year-old woman in Missouri was matched with a Canadian woman in her late 60s. Her own mother had died two years earlier. As you go through life and things happen, I want to call my mother and I want to tell her about it. I can write Faye and tell her, she told the Post. It's good mm. to still have that connection with the older generation. Just while you were talking, I Googled Pen Pals for Seniors. There's a whole bunch of groups. Yeah. Like, Open and free groups to find, and maybe that's an activity for your small group, with your kids, with your spouse, wh- whoever that might be. What if what if we all, especially in this season, took, I don't know, eight minutes a week? What a great thing to do with your kids. Right. What a great thing. Because there's something underlying here, too, that there's classes of people that were easy, easy to overlook. Yeah. Uh, and none of us would say we do that on purpose, right? But the elderly and the shut-ins are one of those mm-hmm. where instead of like the elderly being kind of venerated and being held up and esteemed, a lot of times they can be so easily forgotten. And none of that is purposeful. None of us are like, ah, forget those old people, right? Like, right, right. I don't think any of us actually feel that way, but it just becomes easy to do that. And so things like this remind us, especially in the holiday season, like, uh, no, maybe think about who are the people that we most often look beyond and, and try to make that connection this holiday season. Well, and one of the things we used to do in college, too, is to head to like local nursing homes mm-hmm. and I would just buy like a bouquet of cheap flowers and I would just ask the person at the desk who hasn't had a visitor in a while. And they'd have a whole list for real. And they, and they would, cool I mean, idea, man. I mean, legitimately people like so and so hasn't seen anyone in eight months. So and so hasn't. I mean, other than staff, you know, they're still caring for the person. But I would just show up. Sometimes I'd bring a guitar. And we no just like way. sing songs with them. And I didn't That's have any awesome. qualifications. I had no degree. Like they, I really, there was for a lot of these places, no background check. Yeah. Like I'd literally just show up again. Hey, we have an hour. Who hasn't like had contact in a while? 
and some of them just eat it up. Yeah, and we would sometimes just sit and like watch Jeopardy together. But it was so meaningful. And the big secret is it was really meaningful for both of us. Absolutely, that's the that's the secret. Kind of like when we talked about generosity earlier. The secret of generosity is it does your own heart well. That's that, right. The secret of loving on people is it also does your own heart well. 100%. Well, coming up next, uh, Thanksgiving is right around the corner. So I want to talk Thanksgiving a little bit. In particular, how can we actually connect better with these people that often we don't see very much throughout the year? So we're going to talk Thanksgiving coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. Just, you know what, just Google. Google our names. Google. Oh, man, I wish we showed up if you Googled the laughing pastors. That would be a right. we got to get to that point. <laughs> That's our goal? Yes. That's the benchmark? Yes. All right, well. I'm going to, while you're talking, I'm going to Google the laughing pastors and see. And just see what happens? Yeah. <laughs> you might want to make sure that your speakers are off when you do that. Just, <laughs> just laughing. Just, just screaming laughter. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving, but before I do that, I want to tell you about a concert that's coming up. So we had Go Promoters on the show about a week and a half ago, and um, for a long time, they've done mostly big Christian concerts in the Chicagoland area, and they've been awesome. I was a part of the uh, the genesis of Go Promoters. They do a ton of great work in the Chicagoland area. They do a lot to give back, and their most recent endeavor is called Go Underground, and I, I just love this vision. So there's a metal band named Disciple, and they're coming to Q Bar in Glendale Heights on December 6th, and they're going to be sharing their faith as a part of this concert. So the whole kind of dream behind it is we all have friends that would just never, at least right now, darken the door of a church, right? Like you inviting them to Christmas Eve, they're like, ha no thanks. Yes. Uh, well, but they might actually come to a metal show at a bar in Glendale Heights. So we believe in this so much. Uh, AM 1160 is actually partnering with Go Promoters, and you can get a free ticket for your friends. So just visit 1160hope.com slash disciple, get a free ticket for your friend, and then tickets for you are available for only $10 at itickets.com. So I would encourage you December 6th, Q Bar in Glendale Heights. Bring some friends to see Disciple, and uh, and I think that could possibly be the beginning of a lot of people finding Absolutely. their way back to God, which I think is really cool. That's so, cool. All right, we've talked about it a little bit. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. I By said the way, this on the Sunday. Pastor gets a little weird, so don't. Google Does it? it? Yeah, don't Google it. Apparently, in the in the uh, Pentecostal world, there's something called holy laughter. That's oh yeah, pretty I've debated. I yeah, did not I've this, seen so. that. There's also laugh therapy too, so okay. that's probably a whole other thing. Sorry, sorry to get in the way. That's all right. So. Uh, so I said on Sunday, Thanksgiving is right around the corner, which is a reminder to set your scales back 15 pounds. And, um, <laughs> nice. And I know that you know families have all sorts of different traditions mm-hmm. and different ways of approaching it. And uh, I, are you, do you like Thanksgiving? Are you love excited about it? You Thanksgiving. do. Thanksgiving. What do you love so much about it? You know, I love – I am a big family time guy, so I do love the family time. And uh, I do love the slow pace, like football on in the background and just that Thanksgiving meal. Just the sound of the Lions losing. Is that <laughs> I know it's hard. It's hard for you, man. <laughs> the, uh, the set, like the football and then just family and the food is really good and some time off of school and of work. Um, for the first time uh, in forever – I think for the first time, my family, uh, Carrie and I are hosting her family this year. Uh, so that adds a different dynamic that we are the host site of, uh, of her family's, uh, Thanksgiving. But, um, I'm super excited. I love Thanksgiving. Is this one of, is this on near the top of your list for holidays? It might be the top. Really? I know that's sacrilegious for a pastor to not say Christmas or Easter. 
It might be. Thanksgiving tops Easter for me. I think Christmas is going to be one. I think Thanksgiving's probably two for me. Really? Yeah. Look at us. I think so. Aligned on all things. Fourth of July is up there simply because when it falls in the calendar, because you always know, like, all right, summer's going. <laughs> We're going to do something fun. But That's true. No, I really, really love it. And there is just a... There's a warmth to it, and you see, especially you know, because I've been out in Chicago land since 2003, so I've I've grown just seeing people throw like friendsgivings, you know, yeah. who aren't able to get back to family. Mm-hmm. There's a a coming together that transcends blood and lineage yeah. and geography, and there's just something like I step back and you just like people will post all these photos I know of their Thanksgiving Day meals. I don't yeah. mind it at all. Nope, like, I love it. I think it's I think it's beautiful. Yeah. I think the shared meal is just a really sacred time. I we have some articles that we won't probably have that much time to get into, but uh they are on the Facebook page. Some of them are kind of giving some context to the history. Some of them are sort of like a call to, mm-hmm. you know, maybe extending your table. There's one that I love out of Christianity today that's the headline is simply this, Jesus wants an awkward Thanksgiving dinner. Why extending the table involves an uncomfortable hospitality. One of the things that I've always really appreciated about my family is for as long as I can remember, both on Thanksgiving and Christmas, before we ate anything, before we opened any gifts, uh, we did Meals on Wheels. And we just simply really? delivered meals um, to people throughout the city of Detroit. And that really ingrained in me like a really important priority of serving others first before we, you know, yeah. gorge ourselves on food. And I've I've always really, really appreciated that. But there's an article here out of New York Times and it's not really groundbreaking. There's some references to some uh some books that I think might be really helpful. Um one book is called Twenty Four Six and uh, it's by Tiffany Schlain and she's kind of talking about the significance of a Shabbat, a Sabbath, mm-hmm. a one day not just free from work, but free from tech yeah. as a way of kind of resetting. And it's going to, it's written from this perspective of looking at Thanksgiving maybe as an opportunity for everyone to put their phones away for an entire day. It's a cool idea. I think like, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. Uh, now, a caveat, as long as that technology doesn't extend to the television that has the football on. Well, technically, even like a zipper is technology. Yeah, that's a good you point. Know, really... but, but the phone, <laughs> like even having a mass collection of everybody's phones going, uh-huh. hey, we're just going to, at least during the dinner, maybe, maybe you you say, hey, during dinner, no phone, all phones are off or whatever. I think that's cool, man. I think we've talked so many times about uh, the draw of technology and how that separates us from one another that especially something like a Thanksgiving meal seems mm-hmm. like an appropriate time to uh, to be a, a way technology-free and focused on your family or whoever it is you're with. Well, and this author, too, for the New York Times article does say, yeah, we still allow ourselves to watch TV, but um – Give suggestions. It says you can minimize the downsides with a little advanced planning. Just print out your family schedule. Um, you can print out directions. Uh, it says if you're smarter than I am, you'll remember to print directions both to and from where you're going. <laughs> but like those are things that we used to do not that yeah. long ago. Oh, yeah. And I, I used to be much better at this about taking like a full 24-hour tech Sabbath. Mm-hmm. But I think particularly heading into the holidays, something like this is a really good challenge because – Everything that we just mentioned, the reason that these holidays are so significant really comes down to time with family. Yeah. And yet, most of us, when we go on autopilot, we'll just have our faces buried in our smartphones anyway. So we're kind yeah. of talking out of both sides of our mouth. We're saying, man, I love that it's family getting together. And then what ends up happening in actuality looks like a lot of isolation just around other bodies. Yeah. And I think this call, this challenge, and these other two articles from Christianity Today talking about really prioritizing the most important things 
even if you're not into this whole Jesus Bible church thing, I think is a really important reminder, very counterintuitive, very countercultural, yeah. but something that uh, even as I'm reading it, thinking, all right, I'm, I'm really inspired to give this a shot. Yeah, it's another way to think about how can I make the most of the holiday season, whether it be Thanksgiving or Christmas. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of this intentional, like how often do we wish during the course of our year, man, I wish I just had a day where I could be with family or friends and just have nothing and just be together. Well, you got that. Usually that's what Thanksgiving is for most people. Right. Uh, so take advantage of it and, and, and engage in it. And, uh, and also I encouraged our church this past Sunday, like, uh, you know what? Be thankful for your family. Be thankful for your friends. Be thankful for food. Like there are people that don't have those things right. in this season. Um, and I think what you said is great about looking for ways to maybe reach out to people who are struggling at this time of year. Um, but then also take some time to be thankful uh, for for God's grace in the gospel. You know, take yeah. some time to actually verbalize it with your kids, with your family. Talk about that. Like. This isn't just as much as it's fun. Part of it is the food and the football and the family and the friends, all the different F's. Right. Right. Uh, but also like use it as a time uh, to get like the book of Philippians says, right. Give thanks mm-hmm. and to rejoice and to remember uh, God's grace in our lives. And I think then it can really be a springboard into the Christmas and the Advent holiday. And so uh, you make sure to use that time this uh, this Thanksgiving as well. Well, and one of the things that I like about this uh, Pathios article we posted it's challenging people to a season of Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. which I think is so important, especially, and we talked about this on Sunday, how ironic it is that just 12 hours after we sat around a table sharing our appreciation for all we have, mm-hmm. we stand in line and throw elbows to save $30 on a TV. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. And I'm not against getting a good deal, right? Yep. But there is a certain cognitive dissonance, I think. Yes. We're like, weren't we just gathered around a table, like saying how much we appreciate everyone and everything in our lives. I love this uh, William Arthur Ward quote. I use this. I wrote a a litany of Thanksgiving a couple years ago. Maybe I'll share that again. Um, He simply said, gratitude can transform common days into Thanksgivings, Mm. turn routine jobs into joy, and change ordinary opportunities into blessings. That's awesome. I think that's true. This posture of gratitude, like, What if Thanksgiving wasn't just one day a year for us? What if we began and ended each day with like genuine gratitude, not naivete, not, Mm -hmm. you know, overlooking or dismissing the actual hard stuff in our life, but to say, man, I have a car that got me here. Yeah, Yeah, sure, it's falling apart, but I have one. I have a house and the heat still works and I have friends in my life. And I, you know what I mean? Like I think, I don't know, maybe I'm overselling it. I think the posture of gratitude and Thanksgiving is so important and something that we could really benefit from. And biblical. It's something we're called to do. That's right. So I think that even raises it even more. 100%. Well, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with just a little bit or a lot of bit of interweb insanity, stories we have not seen, sound effects we have not heard, and that's how we're going to land the plane. And that is all coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. All right, everyone. That wackadoo music can mean only one thing. Again, calling it music is being generous. Yeah. It's just kind of a smattering of noise, <laughs> which is probably fitting. That's what we should have called the show. The common good. A smattering, a smattering of noise. Of noise. <laughs> Anywho, if you're new to the show or new to us or new to Interweb Insanity, our producers have chosen some stories for us that we have not seen, sound effects we have not heard. We read them, as Brian says, sight unseen, mm-hmm. which is 
terrifying. Probably the most terrifying part isn't even like the nature of the story, but like trying to get people's names right. I can't tell you how many of these I've stumbled on That's and right. like left the studio thinking, I don't think I know how to read. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think I have a real problem with this. It's really, it's really, really humbling. But before we get into that, Brian has some words to share. Yeah, let me tell you about the Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast. Since 1964, this breakfast has brought together leaders of all faiths from the business, government, and nonprofit worlds. You can join over 600 Chicago leaders in prayer with AM 1160, breakfast chairs Marty Ozinga and his brother Paul, and hear from keynote speaker Dr. Nicholas Pierce, who is the associate pastor at Apostolic Faith Church. You can do that at the Chicago Hilton on December the 6th at 7.30 a.m. Tickets for the 2019 Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast by the Chicago Sunday Evening Club are $100 uh, for individuals or $1,000 for a table. And they're available at Eventbrite or csec.org. That's csec.org. Really well done, Brian. Thank you. I can read. My hat's off to you. My hat is literally off. It's off. It's not on my head. Okay, so I'll kick us off. Okay. Uh, Oregon. Do you say Oregon or Oregon? Oregon. You do? Yes. Is that correct? I don't know. (laughs) All right. Here we go. That word. Oregon. Man ditches girlfriend in car to run from police. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, there's a whole show dedicated to this premise where, like, couples uh, will stage something to happen to see if their significant other will, like, fend for them oh, or run off. That's a terrible idea. It's a terrible show, terrible and it's idea. hilarious. It says a man is behind bars Saturday night after he ditched his girlfriend to run from police in Oregon City. Local police, once he stopped... Uh, he bolted from the car, leaving his new girlfriend behind in the passenger. I think it probably should say old girlfriend or <laughs> ex-girlfriend. The suspect was eventually found in the backyard of a home in the Crabtree Terrace neighborhood. Thanks to the help of a police canine, 27-year-old Lucas Byers had several warrants out for his arrest based on charges for Ooh. delivering heroin. Jeez, Ooh. Louise. Real keeper there. Police said the girlfriend had no idea about his criminal history. She stayed at the scene and cooperated with authorities. They're a fantastic couple. I love them. Yeah, yes. that's probably the most appropriate oh, story England. for that drop. England and our millennials. Millennial, millennials want to ban Secret Santa because it gives them anxiety. Okay. Some millennials <laughs> want to bring an end to the Secret Santa office holiday tradition because it gives them anxiety, a recent study found. <laughs> British job hunting website JobSite reported that millennials find the Secret Santa gift exchange to be anxiety inducing. And Dr. Ashley Weinberg, a psychology lecturer, believes it is the fear of appearing, quote, stingy that makes the holiday tradition stressful. A study found that 78% of millennials felt they contributed more than they should to an office. (laughs) Of course, it's a rite of passage. (laughs) Yeah, right. Compared to 58% of the rest of the workforce. Asked why nearly one in three millennials want to boot the holiday tradition, Weinberg said it was the pressure from social media that contributed to the reported anxiety. I weep for the future. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we used to do a big Secret Santa um, with my family, my extended family, uh-huh. and I kept getting paired up with the same cousin, whom I love, but man, he suckered me like five Christmases in a row. I got him like a great gift, and he like would wrap up a block of wood or something. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I kind of understand that story. All right, Washington, D.C., as if it could get any crazier. A quarter of Americans aren't washing their hands while cooking. Oh, this is going to be a sad one. Many Americans are dreaming about full plates and second helpings as Thanksgiving draws even nearer. Nope, ever nearer. But one in three Americans is worried about getting food poisoning from someone else's poor kitchen hygiene, according to a survey from the Water Quality and Health Council. Though many respondents reported washing their hands before and after preparing a meal, 26% admitted that they do not wash their hands 
throughout the food preparation process. Food safety experts say that this can lead to illness because of the likelihood of cross-contamination. Just uh, threw up in my mouth a little bit. Knew that was it. I was in a Christian rap group called Cross-Contamination. <laughs> So it says twenty five percent of the people don't wash their hands when when uh, when preparing food. You know what? You know what the other seventy five percent are called liars. Oh, you think so? I disagree. I disagree. I'm kidding. <laughs> South Africa dog befriends baby giraffe who was abandoned. Now that's a good one. That's what I'm talking about. A dog in South Africa has befriended a baby giraffe that was abandoned at birth, rescued, and taken to a local orphanage. Jazz the giraffe arrived at the <laughs> rhino orphanage just days after birth. A farmer found him in the wild, weak and dehydrated, and called the center for help. Resident watchdog Hunter quickly began to care for the newcomer. For the newcomer, caretaker Janie Van Heerden says they bonded immediately. She says the baby giraffe has been given IV fluids and is doing much better, being fed milk and is trying to eat leaves. And the friendship continues. All right, that was pretty good. Yeah, that one made me laugh. All right, last but not least, out of England, British couple offering forty thousand dollars salary to live in sitter for two golden retrievers. Wow. Uh, I guess I'm Maybe moving to England. England. <laughs> <laughs> Calling all dog people. If you're looking for a new gig, you may be in luck. A British couple is looking to hire a live-in dog sitter to watch their dogs for forty thousand dollars a year, according to a job listing from recruiting agency Silver Swan Search. I don't know why it's called that. The couple frequently travels and needs someone to take care of their six-story home. Is. Oh, boy. <laughs> and two golden retrievers. Come to find out they're made of actual gold. <laughs> this is an informal pro- an informal property, and they need someone to keep on top of the house while they come and go and have sole responsibility of the dogs in their absence. I want to go to there. <laughs> Little Tina Fey, I want to go to there. Well, never a dull moment. Nope. Uh, and tomorrow's Thanksgiving. So Thursday and Friday will be sort of a uh, best of show that our producer is choosing the selections for. So from uh, Brian and Ian, happy, happy Thanksgiving, have everyone. Thanksgiving, this man. is our first Thanksgiving. Yeah. Look at us. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you, too, and for all of you. We will see you next week and every day for the rest of our lives. From <laughs> 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.